morning. It is great to be back at Ambassador. Uh, I've been on the fundraising trail since January, and I believe you are the second church that I've been most frequently in since I've been on the fundraising uh, tour. I've been at my own church in Huntersville three Sundays, and now ambassador for two. So thank you for the privilege, particularly I want to thank the session. And I also want to thank the missions committee and you as a congregation. Uh, I've been on the fundraising trail, but now by God's grace, through the generous donations of so many, including yourselves, uh, I am now full-time with World Witness, praise be to the Lord, uh, have transitioned from being the senior pastor of the Huntersville Church to now, as Don said, being the director or the team leader for discipleship ministries, pastoral and leadership training in those two countries of Pakistan and Rwanda. So thank you so very much for enabling me to do what God has called me to do. I'm here today not so much to describe for you my ministry work in the coming days and years, but to open God's Word. And I'd like to do so with two texts. You have one listed in your bulletin, Matthew chapter 9, but I don't want to start there. I'd prefer to start with John chapter 12. So if you would, turn to John chapter 12, just looking at uh, two verses there to kind of set the stage for our walking through that passage from Matthew. Uh, as you're turning there, I'm reminded of the importance of these two verses from a little story from the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, that great 19th century English Baptist minister. Uh, in, in typical Spurgeon fashion, he enters into a rhetorical mock conversation with another minister, but this other minister's unfaithful. And this is what Spurgeon says to the other minister. No Christ in your sermon? Then go home, sir. And never preach again until you have something worth preaching. No Christ, sir, in your sermon? Brothers and sisters at Ambassador, I have something. No, I have someone worth preaching. So it's not the time to go home. Uh, for, uh, we, we need to avail ourselves of this opportunity to turn once again to his glorious word, to the special revelation of Almighty God, the God who is and the God who is not silent. John chapter 12, verses 20 and 21. If you just zoom in and, and see these verses, notice the context. This passage in John follows immediately on the heels of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday long ago as he began the Passion Week. And in these two verses, following that entry, we have Greeks coming to see Jesus. Two Greek followers of Yahweh, two Greek followers of, of, of Jehovah. Um, and these were possibly those who had... Uh, come full bore and have become Jews themselves, had entered into the faith of Israel, into Judaism through circumcision. Or it could have been those who came partially, and that is they had adopted the kosher diet and they've adopted following the Jewish calendar. One way or the other, we have Greeks coming and wanting to see Jesus. And it's beautifully ironic because if you'll notice, at the end of that triumphal entry account, we have the Pharisees who are just ticked off that Jesus is receiving all this attention. And they say, look, the world has gone after him. 
Well, indeed, now we have the world. We've got not only Jews coming to Jesus, but now we have Greeks coming to Jesus. Here are these two verses. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Famous words, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And if you've been a pastor and you've been able to preach behind pulpits, many pulpits will have a little plaque so only the minister can see. And on that plaque will say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And that's a wonderful reminder to everyone who has this holy privilege of standing before a congregation of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ of what our duty and what our privilege is actually all about. Our privilege as ministers of God's word is not to give an academic lecture. Our privilege and duty is not to moralize. It's not to provide psychological therapy. It's not to preach a political party. Our privilege and our duty is to show you Jesus, right? To show you the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is our all in all. And no academic lecture, no therapy session, no morality tale, no political speech can compare with Jesus. You simply need Christ. Lee needs Christ. And ministers of the word are to preach the word. And ultimately the word is Jesus Christ. So I want to show you Jesus. What did Paul say to the Corinthians? He said, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or with wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except what? Christ Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's not as if politics or working for the good of the city or for the good of the country aren't needed. It's not that firm, clear teaching on morality and good examples of faithful moral living in a decadent culture where right is wrong and wrong is right is not needed. It's not that we have little or no concern with those who are affected by their own sin and the sins of others in, in, in mental and emotional ways. It's not that our minds don't need to be taught the great truths of the Christian faith and even in some academic sense. No, it's because all of those needs are met first and ultimately in Jesus Christ. It's what the king says. It's what King Jesus says that's good for the country, right? It's what Jesus has done, his, his record of moral perfection that is needed, right? It's, it's what Jesus is, the balm of Jesus, gentle and lowly, that is the ultimate salve or the ultimate balm or medicine for troubled souls. And we need to keep pointing people to Jesus. It is Jesus that all the great teachings of Scripture point to, lead us to. None of them can be disconnected from him. Our minds must be conformed not to a mental construct. Our minds must be conformed to a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. You need Jesus. The Greeks said, Sir, we wish to show you, we wish to see Jesus. And it's my privilege 
by God's grace, to show you Jesus. And I'd like to do so this morning from Matthew. So now if you'd look in your bulletins or in your Bible to the passage listed there, Matthew 9, 35 through 38. It's my privilege to show you Jesus. And let me do so from his holy, glorious word. Hear and by faith see in your hearing this Jesus. Verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That's our text. Where do we find our text? What, what, what has come before these verses? What's come before these verses, according to Matthew, has been the genealogy of Jesus and the birth of Jesus, the, the visit of the wise man, the flight into Egypt, you know, Jesus' childhood in Nazareth, John the Baptist preparing the way, Jesus' own baptism and temptation in the wilderness, the great sermon on the mount, and then in Matthew 9 we're concluding two great chapters on the healing ministry of the Lord Jesus. Another way to put all that is what has come before our text has been the eternal Son of God taking on human flesh, entering into time and space, going on mission. Going on the mission of saving his people. And what comes after our text? Uh, in, in the gospel account of Matthew. Well, it's Jesus continuing that mission, and not only Jesus continuing that mission, Jesus sending his disciples out on mission. Jesus sending them out to teach and to heal. The, Jesus sending them out into the first harvest field, the people of Israel. And so what's in between Jesus coming on mission and Jesus continuing on mission and sending his disciples out on mission? What comes in between these verses? These glorious, beautiful verses. And in these verses, we see a beautiful picture of Jesus. So from these verses, let me show you Jesus. Let me show you his, his vision. Let me, let me show you something of his heart. And then, finally, let me show you something of his voice, what he says, his, his vision, his heart, his voice, what he saw, what he felt, what he said. Remember what the author of Hebrews says, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So not only let me show you what Jesus saw, what he, he felt, and what he said, but let me show you what he sees what he feels, what he says now. First then, his vision. What does Jesus see? He's been moving in and among the brokenness and the pain and the diseases of mind and body in the Israel of his day. What, does, what did he see and what does he see now? Verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages 
teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. What does Jesus see? He sees a world of humanity living, whether they're living on a farm or a little hamlet or they're living in a high rise. He sees cities and, and, and villages. He sees a world of cities and villages and he sees a world that is filled with disease and affliction and pain and suffering. He sees it all. Locations, geography, and pain. That's what he sees, but who does he see? And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he saw the crowds. He saw and he sees not only brokenness and the fallenness and the hurt and the diseases and the afflictions of this world, but more importantly, he sees the ones who are suffering. He sees the individuals. He sees the harassed. He sees the afflicted. He sees the diseased. He sees the scared children who are scared when they hear the shots ringing out. He sees the inconsolable mothers sobbing for their children. He sees the abused. He sees the addicted. He sees the confused, the misled. He sees those who are hate-filled. He sees the crowds. He sees the oppressors and the oppressed. He sees the Russians and he sees the Ukrainians. He sees the shooter and the victims. He sees the damage that human sin has caused and is causing and will cause. He saw the crowds. He will see the crowds. And right now, he sees this crowd. He sees you. Now, have you ever been somewhere that's just exquisitely beautiful? Maybe it's an oceanscape. Maybe it's a, a, a wonderful landscape. And you're standing there and you're looking and you're just enthralled. It's gorgeous. You're mesmerized. And then you begin to look around and you're hoping that everybody else is just as enthralled with the beauty as you are. And inevitably, you look around and there's that person. They're not looking at the mountain. They're not looking at the crashing seas. What are they looking at? They're glued to their phone, right? Or to something else. They're oblivious to the breathtaking beauty. Have you ever watched one of those videos of someone playing the piano amazingly, beautifully in some public place like a train station or in the subway? And as you begin to watch the video, maybe you were there in person, you just, you just can't take your eyes off of it. And you're listening and it's glorious and you begin to wonder, do I have any other folk around me who are as enthralled as I am? And inevitably, someone with earbuds in their ears, they just keep their head down and they march right past and they are oblivious. We've experienced people being oblivious to beauty. How much more so are people oblivious to pain and suffering 
and ugliness. Dear ones, Jesus wasn't oblivious. He saw the crowds. He sees the crowds. He is not oblivious. He moved and by his spirit and through his people, he moves among the broken and he sees. May I show you Jesus? He saw the crowds. As a man, he saw the crowds. As a perfect man, he sees the crowds with human eyes. As God, he knows everything. Nothing is hidden from Jesus. Nothing escapes his sight. And such knowledge of his knowledge, of his seeing everything, can be frightening, right? It can be terrifying, unless by God's grace you see more of Jesus. So let me show you more of Jesus. Go back to 35 and 36. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now may I show you not only his vision, may I show you something of his heart. See now the heart of the one who lived perfectly, the one who died for your sins, the one who was buried, the one who was resurrected. See something of his heart. See his heart for the broken and the fallen. See his heart for the battered and the the left for dead. For the physically diseased and the spiritually oppressed. He had compassion for them. Harassed, helpless, oppressed, or led by the evil one. Dear old Bishop Ryle, J.C. Ryle, an English Anglican bishop long ago, commented well on this passage. He said, let us mark our Lord's tender concern for neglected souls. He saw... He saw them neglected by those who for time, for the time, ought to have been teachers. He saw them ignorant and hopeless and helpless and dying and unfit to die. And the sight moved him to deep pity. That loving heart could not see such things and not feel My my dear brothers and sisters, let me say what we all should know. Something that seems so simple, and yet it is the depth of profundity. The sentence is simple, short. Jesus' heart is never cold. Jesus' heart is never cold toward any of you, toward any of us. He had compassion for them. Now this is not to diminish his holiness. This is not to diminish his justice. This is not to diminish his his wrath. But the heart of Jesus, dear ones, is never cold. It's never indifferent. It's never calloused. It is tender. It is gentle. It is lowly. It is compassionate. It is loving. 
And if you don't come to that conviction in your life, brothers and sisters, your life is just going to be miserable. Miserable from fear. Miserable from guilt. Miserable from disappointment or anger or pride or self-absorption. Jesus' heart is never cold. May I show you this, this Jesus? He had compassion for them. He has compassion for you. That's something of his sight. That's something of his heart. Now lastly, something of his voice. His voice. Lastly, may I show, show you his voice, or, or maybe better put, may I let you hear it. Verses 37 and 38. Then this, this one who sees, this one who has compassion, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now notice the imagery changes. It changes from sheep without, without shepherds, with absentee shepherds, to, to the imagery of a farmer and fields and laborers. I was recently reading this great little book by Michael Reeves entitled Overflow, how, how the joy of Trinity inspires our mission and in it, Reeves rightly, I think, says that this passage is just, quite frankly, it's weird. It's just a strange passage. And, and, and maybe it's just such a familiar passage on missions for us that we don't recognize the strangeness. We don't quite get the weirdness. Reeves says that the weirdness part of the passage is not so much the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few. That's not the strange part. Here's the strange part. The strange part is the action step uh, that is commanded by Jesus. Okay? What is that action step? Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, why is that weird? It's weird because of the one who's saying it. Who's saying it? Jesus. Who's Jesus? The Son of God. Okay, the Son of God, could not the Son of God, but with but one prayer, one utterance unto the Father, say to the Father all that his heart desired. Oh, Father, would you give to me the harvest? Bring the harvest to me. Bring your people to me. Bring the sheep to the great shepherd and to all that I am doing and will do for them. Couldn't Jesus have just uttered that prayer? And wouldn't such one prayer of Jesus be far more effective than, as Reeves rhetorically says, than all of our weak and our feeble and our faulting and our hesitant and our intermittent and our sin-tinged prayers combined? One prayer of Jesus. Wouldn't that be far more effective than all of our prayers combined? May our hearts rejoice in the answer to this weird teaching of Jesus on how we should pray. May our eyes well up as we contemplate this wonderful privilege. May our eyes well up with tears of gratitude and, and joy of what he said to them and to us and to you. The harvest is plentiful. 
but the laborers are few. Therefore, you pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. Jesus wanted them and Jesus wants you to pray. He demands that you pray this prayer. He wants us, you see. He wants us. Can you imagine this? Jesus wants us to pray with him. To be co-laborers in prayer with him. Another way to put this is, you know, you've got those, um, those days when you're working and it's, you, you carry your son or your daughter to work. Jesus is taking us to work with him. He says, come and pray with me. Be a co-laborer in prayer with me. This, dear ones, this, this prayer ought to be firmly fixed in our prayer life, in the prayers of our congregations, in the prayers of our families, in the prayers of, our, our, of us as individuals in our own prayer closets, in our own devotional life. This should be a regular petition. Lord, raise up these, these laborers and send them out into your harvest field. Why isn't, a more, why isn't it a more fixed prayer? I know we pray this on occasion, but why don't we pray it more? What may be stranger than Jesus wanting us to pray with him is why this prayer is not a regular part of our prayer life. How often do you actually pray a prayer along these lines? You know, maybe it gets left off. This is just speculation. Maybe it gets left off because it's potent. It's powerful. It's, what I like to say, it's delightfully dangerous. Uh, For those of you who've been ARP for at least three or four years, you, you probably remember that World Witness had a prayer initiative a couple of years ago, uh, the, the Board of World Witness and the administration of, of World Witness staff wanted all of our ARP churches and congregations to uh, pray for two names of two people in the year 2020. That the Lord might lead those two people from the various congregations into world missions. And they wanted us to submit those names to the World Witness Board so the World Witness Board could be praying as well. Well, the Huntersville Church, we did that. And we, by God's grace, we actually sent in, I think, about five names. And, and we've seen the Lord do a wonderful thing. He sent one of the families that we were praying for and that we sent their names in. He sent them to, uh, of all places, Long Island, to the Stony Brook Boarding School where our brother is there teaching so many international students from all over the world and and has the wonderful gospel opportunity to share Jesus and show Jesus to those children. The Lord has answered that prayer in remarkable ways through, through the names that we have submitted. But here's the surprising part. God also answered in an unexpected way. There were two names that weren't on that list that we sent into our witness. Lee and Joni Shelnut. And yet, and yet, God in his own mysterious way 
is now leading the shellness deeper into his harvest field. Hear the voice of Jesus. Hear his command. Heed it no matter how delightfully dangerous obedience in that prayer is. He said, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. May I show you Jesus? May I show you something of his vision? He saw the crowds. May I show you something of his heart? He had compassion for them. And may I show you something of his voice? Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Why? Because this beautiful Savior, whose heart is never cold, was living and would die and would be resurrected for sheep without a shepherd, for a harvest that will be brought in, and mysteriously a harvest that will be brought in through your prayers and maybe through your work in his fields. So let's, let's drill down. Please, every single person here, by grace, see Jesus. This is the Savior of sinners, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Trust this Jesus. Entrust your life into this Jesus' hands, both now and yes, now. For today is the day of salvation. Now and all your days. And believer and disciple of Jesus, follow him. Simply what a disciple is, right? A follower of Christ. See what he sees. Are you scanning the crowds every day? The people that God is in his glorious providence is bringing across your path. Are your eyes open and are you seeing them? Or are you caught up in something or someone or anything that would distract you from seeing? See them. And when you see them, pray that your heart will beat with the compassion of Christ. Ryle is convicting here as well. The man who does not see or does not feel for the souls of all unconverted persons can surely not have the mind of Christ. See, and by God's grace, may your heart be soft that you would feel for the lost and the broken and the hurting. And follow him also by simply praying. Again, no matter how delightfully dangerous this prayer might be. And you be ready when you pray this prayer to be the laborer for which you prayed. You may very well be. Like Lee and Joni were. You may be. And whether that is go to Pakistan or Rwanda, 
or Raleigh and Apex. It's his field. May you be the one who sees it, who feels for it, who prays for workers, and who labors in the name of the glorious Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Naturally, Father, our eyes are closed, we're blind, our hearts are cold, our voices are mute, and so we need the working, the supernatural working of your spirit in our hearts. I pray first, Father, for those who, if they do not know Christ now, they would come in faith to him. And by grace, may they see Christ and may they entrust themselves into his care and may they love him. And I pray for all of us then that you would give us eyes to see, hearts to love, voices to pray, and lives lived in your harvest field. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.